Good morning. Sorry. How are you guys doing? Good. Oh man, some of y'all are awake. That's cool. My name is uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Glad to have you with us, uh, man. If you're new, a couple of things. We love the Bible. We love Jesus. We love His Word. So we walk through a lot of. Uh, in addition to that, if you are new, there should be these connect cards on your chairs. Please fill one out. Drop it in the offering basket. We'd love to learn more about you. We'd love to hang out with you, take you out for coffee, all of the things. Uh, further, if you don't have a Bible, we do have those available for you, and that is our gift to you. Uh, so please take one. They should be also in the rows or in the back connect area. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 22 through 30. So while you open or load your Bible, I'm going to go ahead and ramble just a little bit uh, so that we all get on the same page. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started a, a new series titled Glory, the Person and Work of Jesus. We are in week three, and really our desire for this series was to focus on specific areas of the life and ministry of Christ so that we would better understand who he is, so that we would better understand what he came to do and what kind of implications that has for us on our lives. In week one, we looked at uh, God entering into human history as the man Jesus Christ, and he made himself known and fulfills his primary mission. That is that God is reconciling man to himself. Last week, we looked at something a little more practical. We looked at uh, uh, praying like Jesus. We looked at what prayer isn't, what prayer is, uh, and then what Jesus teaches on that, and again, what that means for you and I. This week, we're going to be looking at something similar, but we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus, what Jesus taught, how he taught, why he taught, and what kind of implication that has for you and me. Now, much like last week, Luke 4 is going to serve merely as a launching pad for our time. We are going to spend a little bit of time there. We are going to work through a couple of things that he says in this section, but primarily we're going to look at a lot of scripture. So last week, or like last week, it was Bible trivia. So I hope you have your Bibles ready, uh, whether it's by phone or a hard copy. That would be much cooler if you did have one. Just saying. But uh, if you do, we're going to flip through a lot of scripture today. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read Luke 4 verses 22 to 30, pray, and then dive into our time. So hopefully you've gotten there already, and, and here is what Luke writes, beginning in verse 22. <clears throat> and all spoke well of him, that is, that is Jesus, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this excuse me, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent 
to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, or none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. God, as we, uh, as we dive into your word, God, my prayer is that you, Holy Spirit, would be present with us and at work in us so that we would receive your word, so that our hearts would be softened, so that our ears would be open, so that we would continue to worship you through the teaching of your word. God, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather and proclaim your word, to sing your word among this beautiful weather. God, we pray that you would be glorified in this time, that our hearts would be not only softened, but changed, and that you would be made much of. God, I ask that you would speak through me, that I would be cast aside, and that you would be glorified in this time. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Man, so who, uh, who was your favorite teacher growing up? Can you think about that for a second? You don't have to answer, even though I'd love to hear but who was your favorite teacher growing up? Or did you have a favorite teacher when you were growing up? As I was thinking through that, I kind of went back through junior high and high school uh, and, 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 and in, even in college, and I could think of a couple of people. I remember my eighth grade uh, American history teacher, no, my Texas history teacher, his name was Mr. Guzman. And Mr. Guzman was so cool because he had these corny games, right, that, that, that all came down to Texas history. And he would quiz us, every day. And he would quiz us every day, and he would dress up every day. Uh, and I'm not talking about like suit and tie. I'm talking like colonial times. Like this dude would dress up every day, and he challenged us. He gave us uh, uh, corny acronyms, and, uh, and we memorized a ton of things in his class. And looking back, it was probably one of the most fun classes that I had ever had. At the time, it always sounds so, or it always feels corny. It always feels like, when am I going to use this? Uh, and then now, as, as a father, when, when, we, when my son and I walk through history stuff, I remember things that Mr. Guzman used to tell us. Uh, even at times when Seth uh, studies for tests, a lot of the, the tips and tricks that we work through are things that Mr. Guzman instilled in me or in, or in the guys that were in my class. He was in eighth grade. I remember my junior year in high school, I had an English teacher. His name was Mr. Trevino, and Mr. Trevino constantly pushed, at least he constantly pushed me. I really didn't want to do well in school. I didn't want to be there, and he saw something in me that I obviously couldn't, and so he was challenging me. He always put me on the spot, forced me to write more than what I really wanted to, uh, and he would always critique my work, ask me to come in after school, and he would have me read all sorts of books. That's where I discovered J.D. Salinger. I remember reading The Catcher in the Rye and falling in love with that book. Not a big fan of John Steinbeck, I'm sorry, 
But nevertheless, that was something that Mr. Trevino really pushed in, in me. And I remember finishing college, thinking about him, getting a degree in English, and just being like, man, that dude was right. And I had to learn a lot of things the hard way, right? But nevertheless, I remember him. I remember several of my coaches, my wrestling coaches, who would challenge us in a way that just made you creep up to the line between wanting to keep going and quitting and, and maybe even thinking if you're sane. By, by continuing to, to wrestle or continuing in this sport. And uh, they would push us to that limit. And at times it would be so overwhelming that you really did want to quit and there's no way the body can continue to move forward. And they would just push and push and push. And, uh, and that was something that not only translated on the mat, but translated into life. And so I, I think about those guys that, that just invested a lot of time in a punk kid. And so with that being said, when you think about those teachers, when you think about people that maybe have invested time into your life, how is it that they taught you? They, they taught you by, uh, man, walking alongside of you. They, they taught you while they were doing at the same time. They taught you by challenging you. They taught you by also telling you hard things, things that you didn't want to hear, things that you maybe didn't want to receive, things that maybe you weren't sure how you were going to respond to. But nevertheless, those are good teachers, the ones that push, 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 and then know when to kind of back off a little bit, come alongside of you, and then push, push, push some more and then back off and come alongside of you. They wore many hats, not just the one in the classroom, but they wore many, many hats. And similar to them, we're going to walk through several things that we see Jesus do throughout his earthly ministry and how he teaches, why he teaches, what he teaches. We're going to walk through several things today, and I'm sure we can land on uh, 15, 20, 30 things, but we're only going to cover five of those things today. We're only going to cover five of those things, and I want to spend um, a a good amount of time on each one of them, hoping that Christ would uh, challenge us, that he would convict us in this time. And so the first thing that I want us to look at when we come to the teaching of Jesus is that Jesus teaches hard things. And we're, we're parking in Luke 4 for just a minute. Jesus teaches hard things. And so to give you kind of a little bit of context of what's happening in Luke 4, in week one of our series, we saw that Jesus enters the synagogue and that he is handed a scroll and he opens the scroll and it is uh, from the prophet Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah says that there is one who is coming, who is filled with the spirit, who is anointed and who has been sent by God. And so Jesus quotes that, uh, that, that verse or those verses in Isaiah, I believe that's Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Jesus quotes them, rolls the scroll back up, hands it back off to the dude, and then goes on to say, today what Isaiah says has been fulfilled. In other words, he says, today this has been fulfilled. The guy that he's talking about, that's me. And I'm here. And so we pick up from that section. We pick up in that section. And what we see in the opening verses of Luke 22 is that they all spoke well of him and they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And so what he's saying is that these people sat back after Jesus you know, quoted Isaiah and taught a little bit. They sat back and they're like, this guy's a good preacher. This guy, this guy has some good things to say. I like what he's saying. I like, I like where his head's at. And then they continue by saying, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? And so not only do they sit back, not only do they marvel at his words, and they're like, man, this guy's guy's got it. Others were also saying, 
I went to high school with that dude. Uh, like, my parents worked alongside of his parents. Like, I remember him when he was 12. They're kind of looking back at what, at Jesus's life. And so Jesus continues, and he says, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. Here's what they're saying, and this is what he's pushing them on. As he has read through Isaiah 61, what the people in the synagogue are saying is, and I know who you are. I know who you are. Here's what would be really cool. All the works that you've done, you should do them here because we were raised in the same town, because we went to Mackay together, right? You should do them here. You should do those same things that you're going to be talking about, the things that Isaiah uh, uh, writes in, those things you should do because we're homeboys. You, you should do because we, we love the same mascot and we go to the same restaurants. You should do it because I remember when we were kids. That's why you should, you should do all of these wonderful works here in your hometown. And so Jesus continues. And he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. He's quoting from 1 Kings. I believe this is 1 Kings 17. And a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to one, Zarephath. And then he goes on to quote 2 Kings 5. And he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That's, yeah, I think that's 2 Kings chapter 5. And so what he's saying is, one more time, what they are telling him is, man, you should do these wonderful things because we're from the same hometown. Therefore, do them here. And what he goes on to tell them, he tells them a really hard truth. He tells them, you're missing it that God is going to have mercy and compassion on whom he's going to have mercy and compassion. You see, earlier in this section, he quotes Isaiah, and one of the things he quotes from Isaiah is that he came for those who are poor in spirit. And so what these guys are saying is, man, we want you to do what you're talking about because we're from the same hometown. In other words, they're saying, we want you to do the same thing because we earned it. We deserve it because we're from the same hometown. And he is saying, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for you. And ultimately what this does is it points to the sovereignty of God. Now, in the sovereignty of God, people start to get nervous. Like, whoa, wait. Yes, he is talking about the sovereignty of God, that God will have compassion and mercy on whom he will have compassion and mercy on, and that, that does not negate uh, man's responsibility. It doesn't negate man's responsibility because what Jesus does in this section, he is piercing the heart of their sin. More than anything, he is piercing them and saying, you're entitled. You're not, you're not poor in spirit. Elsewhere in scripture, he says, I didn't come to save the ones who are not sick. I came to save the ones who are sick. The, the, the physician heals those who are sick, not the one who's, who's not. Likewise, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And that's what he's, that's what he's pointing at here. And so he speaks hard things. He tells them hard truths. And oftentimes, even when we read through Scripture or in community, when we begin to speak hard truths into one another— in light of what Christ has already said, right? And when we begin to speak hard truths to one another, you immediately get defensive. You're like, I don't like what you just said. 
You don't like what that person just said, or you don't like what God just said, not because you're against that doctrine, but because he is poking at your sin. Because he is poking at the heart of your sin, and you don't want to talk about that, so you'll bring up other things. And so when Jesus teaches hard things, he teaches by offending. The gospel is an offense. The gospel is calling sinners to repentance. You don't want, we don't want to repent. We don't want to. When we looked at the life of Jesus in prayer, the reason, the bone, like the bare bones reason we don't, we don't pray is because we don't want to. And so when Jesus is calling us to repentance, we don't like it because that means turning away from our own desire and focusing on God and coming before God. And so we're offended that he is piercing, poking, touching that thing that we don't want to talk about. And if it's not that, you just feel that you're entitled. You feel that you deserve it, that you earned it, that, man, I know all of this stuff. Therefore, God owes me. God owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. And so when he teaches, he teaches hard things. He teaches as the ultimate prophet, the one who came to offend. And like prophets of the Old Testament who died, he does as well. Except this one dies on behalf of sinners. Fulfilling the wrath of God on the cross on behalf of the ungodly. That's the difference. And so people don't like to hear about their sin. People don't like to hear about repentance. Likewise, the church, the church gets so used to the person of Jesus that when we start talking about the divinity of Jesus and his authority, we get offended. We get offended because that's not something you should talk about. Stop talking about that thing. I come to church on Sunday, I go to community group, and I pray before my meals. Stop it. He is piercing, he is touching that subject that you don't want to talk about. And he calls you to repent. He calls you to repent. He calls you to repent because he has been given authority. He's not just speaking the word of God. He's speaking the word of God with authority. And further, the people in Luke 4 don't like that. They don't like that he's not only speaking the word of God and quoting to them the Old Testament. They don't like that they're realizing that God is the one with authority, not them. And so we see the aftermath of that. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So he touches on something that they don't necessarily want to talk about, that they don't want to work through, that they don't want to ultimately look at, internalize, and be convicted by. And so what we see is that they get mad. Why would you talk about that? Why would you say that? And instead of repenting, they aim to kill him. Right? It goes on to say, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they can throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And so we look at them, we're like, man, those people in the synagogues, glad I'm not like them. You would have done worse. We would have done worse. And so Jesus teaches hard things. That's number one. Number two, Jesus teaches the Bible. Jesus teaches the Bible. You see, he doesn't, he doesn't teach that Scripture is merely moral, but he teaches that 
that Scripture is God's divine word. Right? I want you to look at, uh, this is John 5.39. And he says, you search, this is Jesus speaking, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. In Luke 24, 27, he writes, uh, this is where he's, he's resurrected. He's walking with uh, the, the, the disciples. And he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. More than anything, what Jesus does when he teaches the Bible is that it points back to him. That it constantly points back to him. All the scriptures point to Jesus. And see, many of you, many of us, oftentimes forget that man, the Bible is God's revelation about himself. And oftentimes we forget so easily that we forget to, man, defend and take a stance biblically, and instead we argue philosophically. And it's about other things other than pointing yourself to fix your eyes on Christ or pointing others to fix their eyes on Christ. I'm not saying don't study the Bible. I'm not saying don't get nerdy. I'm not saying any of those things. But as you're doing that, know that its intention is to point everything back to Jesus. That its intention is to make his glory known. That its intention is for you to come to better understand him so that you would worship him. That's what scripture is ultimately pointing us to. It is pointing us to the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus teaches the Bible. He teaches the Bible. He says hard things or he teaches hard things. Oftentimes we'll even read through scripture and we'll try to mold scripture to fit us at times. You'll see even preachers do this as well, right? Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the most common ones is like the story of David and Goliath, right? Like Goliath is your problems, you're David and you're throwing God, right, at Goliath so that he can conquer your problems, stuff like it's not about you. It's about his glory. Okay? It's not about you. It's about his glory. So you'll mold your stuff into Scripture. All Scripture points to Jesus. That's number two, that Jesus teaches the Bible. Number three, Jesus teaches compassion. Jesus teaches compassion. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at character, conviction, and conduct. So let's go to Mark chapter 6, verses 34 to 36. I'll give you a second or two. Here we go. This is what Mark writes. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd. This is Jesus. He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away and go into, uh, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Every time we see Jesus teach, not just with compassion, but when he teaches compassion, it's always going to come at the most inconvenient times for others. Always. And then how that transfers into you and I, how that applies to you and I, is that compassion is always going to come at an inconvenient time. Always. You see, the, the context of this part of Scripture, Jesus and the disciples have had a really rough day. They just got wind that John the Baptist has been beheaded. 
They've been working really hard. And previous to this, Jesus tells the disciples, okay, you guys take the day off, take the night off and go pray. We just need to kind of regroup a little bit. So, so chill out. And so Jesus gets on a boat and the people see him and they run to him because they know who he is. And they run to him and they're on the shore. They're waiting for him to come and the boat lands and, or the boat lands, the boat, the boat comes ashore. And so Jesus sees them. And, and the first thing that we see is that he teaches us about character. Character is all about who you are. It's all about who you are. He doesn't ignore the need. He sees the need and doesn't ignore it. He could have been like, back it up, back it up. I'm really tired. I can't do this right now, guys. Uh, Let's schedule an appointment for tomorrow at 9 a.m., right? Just, uh, you know, text Peter, right? Like he he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't say, back up, back up. He sees it and he doesn't ignore it. And then it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So not only is he informed and he sees the need, now he feels the need, right? Compassion is is two words, to suffer with. That's what it means. So he feels where they're at. He meeting them where they're at, he sees it and he feels it. And then it says that he stayed with them. He stayed with them. So when we're talking about conviction, we're talking about what you believe. When we're talking about conduct, it's what you do. It's what you do. And so what we see in Mark 6 is that Jesus sees the need, he feels the need, and then he does something about it. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that he not only teaches them, but he prays with them and he heals many of them. And at the same time, the disciples are a part of all of this that's going on. And then they go to him and they're like, it's late. Can we, there's too many of them. Can't we just tell them to go home and then we'll just handle them tomorrow. Can't we just set up appointments throughout the week? I'll pull out Google Calendar. I'll get, just tell them to go. And then he feeds them. Instead of, instead of like kind of responding to it, he's like, oh, right, we're going to feed them. Jesus sees the need. He feels the need. And then he does something about it. That's, that's character, who you are. That's conviction, what you believe. And that's conduct, what you do. And oftentimes, Christians, eh, this is for the Christians, oftentimes, be like, yep, I do see the need. But do you feel it? The pastor will. He'll feel the need. And we ignore it. You see the need and be like, man, I'll, I'm going to pray for you. And more than likely some community group will probably pick that up. Or you'll see it and you'll, you'll feel it and be like, okay, what are we going to do about it? Whoa. All right. We didn't say anything about doing. Right? It becomes uncomfortable. It becomes uncomfortable not because it's uncomfortable. It becomes uncomfortable because it's inconvenient. Compassion, moments of compassion are always going to happen at inconvenient times. It's right when you're going to leave on date night, right before vacation, just before you're going to go to sleep. And you're walking to your bed and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm just so tired. It's been one of those weeks and the phone's going to ring. Compassion is always going to come at the inconvenient times. And so what Jesus teaches in this moment is that the needs, the, the seeing, the feeling, and the doing are bigger. Are bigger. So that's Jesus teaches compassion. The next thing is that, that, uh, that Jesus teaches by challenging. He teaches by challenging. Let's look at uh, Matthew 14. 
verses 28 through 33. Same thing, I'll give you a second or two. Here you go. And Peter answered him, Lord, this is when they're all out the, on, the, on the boat. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus teaches by challenging his followers all of the time. He teaches by challenging. See, when, when Jesus is out on the water and Peter sees him, Jesus tells him, Come to me. He doesn't tell him about the weather conditions. He doesn't tell him about what's going on. He doesn't tell him about the great white, right? He doesn't say any of that. He just says, come to me. And this is something similar that Paul echoes in Philippians 3 when he's talking about striving toward the goal. That you know what the goal is, you see what the goal is, and you are to move forward on that goal. And so Jesus tells him, come. And so Peter gets off the boat and he starts walking toward him. And Jesus is like, keep your eyes on me. Just like Paul encourages the Philippians, strive toward the one goal. Be disciplined toward the one goal. And in addition to that, Jesus doesn't tell him anything about what's going on to the left or to the right. And that tells us, man, look toward Jesus. Don't worry about the left to the right. It's going to be loud. Things are going to be there. Things are going to happen. But look this way. Look forward. Look toward the goal. Fix your eyes on Christ and go, go, start walking. But oftentimes what happens, we're like, circumstance, circumstance, and everything starts to fall apart. That's what happened with Peter. The wind started changing. Jesus could have told him about it, but he wasn't. He was telling homeboy, just look at me and come to me. Come, I'm right here. Come to me. And then the wind starts changing and Peter flips. He freaks out. The same thing happens to us. We start walking, circumstances, things start happening, and we start freaking out right? We start freaking out. He never said that circumstances weren't going to be good, that, weren't the, that, that they weren't going to be bad, or that there weren't going to be challenging times. Just like he didn't say, like, yeah, there's high winds. There's some waves. He didn't say any of that. He just said, come to me. Strive toward the goal. Don't look to the left or to the right. It's always, something's always going to be happening. And strive toward the goal. Strive toward the goal. In John 15, he says, abide in me. That means to remain in him, to continue without fading, to stand firm in him, to stand firm on the finished work of Christ. Stand firm there. That's what it means to abide. Because elsewhere in John 15, the opposite of abide is to wither. It's the opposite. Withering. And Last year, we walked through James. We've talked about this even when we walked through the Beatitudes. Oftentimes, we're constantly asking God, man, change my circumstance, change my circumstance, change my circumstance. And yet, what we looked at last week in terms of prayer, it's like, it's not so much about your circumstance, but the condition of your heart. What would it look like for you to have your heart changed? What would it look like for you at the end of this season to come out more like Christ, to be more godly, or to be godly, period? That has nothing to do with your circumstance but it has everything to do with you walking and striving 
toward that goal. So he challenges his followers. The next one, the last one, is that Jesus teaches while doing. I didn't choose a verse for this because we see this throughout all of the Gospels, but that Jesus teaches while doing. In short, that means Jesus disciples. He disciples. And so when we're talking about discipleship, we're talking about class always being in session. Always. Every time Jesus is with the disciples, it's always a teaching opportunity. Whether it's something formal where he says, come over here, sit down, I'm going to walk you through a couple of things. Or he does things informally so that they would see him and then ask about him. There's always an opportunity. But he teaches while he does those things with them. And so what that means for you and I as Christians is that class is always in session. You have a responsibility. Whether you're responsible or irresponsible with it is something else. But we have a responsibility. And class is always in session. The real question is, what are you teaching? What are you teaching? What are you teaching at work? What are you teaching at the office? What are you teaching at home, parents? What are you teaching? Kids watch and listen to everything. They see it. Your students, they see it. Your coworkers, they see it. Class is always in session. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Whether you're responsible or irresponsible with that task is a different question. But class is always in session. So, what kind of a teacher are you? What kind of a teacher are you? We're going to look at four different kinds. We're going to strive for the fourth one, but we got to talk about the first three. First one is, maybe you're the hammer, right? You're the person who, who loves theology. Man, you, you want to be like a, that, that dude, John Calvin, just stay in your cave and write and read books and that's cool. Man, you love theology. You want to dive into God's word. You want to learn more about God's word. You want to, man, you want to speak fluent Greek, right? You want to be able to translate in Hebrew while speaking in English, right? You want to be doing all of those things. You want to love theology. Uh, the problem with the hammer is uh, they love theology, which is great, but they compromise mission. They compromise the mission. The mission now becomes reactionary, Right? Well, if, you know, if they want to know about uh, the Bible according to John Calvin, they'll ask me. Right? You compromise the mission. You become reactionary. In addition to that, you sacrifice people because you're better than them. Because you're better than them, or at least you believe that you're better than them. And you're like, man, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, but your actions convey something different. You sacrifice people. You're like uh, kind of the modern-day Pharisee. Let's look at, uh, this is Matthew 23. It's one verse. Matthew 23, verse 13. This is what Jesus tells the Pharisees. Where is it? He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. It's like, man, you're all about the theology. Great, you're studying the word of God. 
but you sacrifice people and you compromise mission just so that you can feel arrogant and proud and better than. You miss it. So maybe you're the hammer. Maybe you are for the people, right? Maybe you're for the people. In other words, you love people, right? You love to sit down, have one-on-ones, coffee, coffee on the word, right? You love to, love to go out and sit down and have coffee. Man, tell me all about what's going on. How are you doing? How's life? How's your heart? Tell me all the things. He did what? Like, you want to know, like, all of the things that are going on in life. And, you, you know, you're very, you have wonderful interpersonal skills, right? You more than likely serve on hospitality. Thank you, right? Like, you love people, but you compromise theology. You compromise theology. You compromise theology because I, I'm, I'm not going to offend them. I'm not going to, that is the preacher's job, and they should probably read this book by this person. And you forget, right? You forget that, man, Christ came to die and save sinners. So, so tell them. Tell them about repentance. I'm not, I didn't say yell at them. I didn't say yell at them. Tell them. Tell them about the good news of Christ that he came to die for sinners like you and me. It, yeah, it is offensive. Just, just like in Luke 4, it's, it's offensive. But he came, to, he came for those who are poor in spirit, the ones who are spiritually bankrupt, the ones who, who got nothing. They're emptied of their pride because they got nothing. And you tell them. You tell them. You compromise theology and you sacrifice mission. Right? You sacrifice mission. Because all of these people, their hearts are broken. So I need to save them. Right? So you compromise theology and you uh, sacrifice mission. Look at, uh, this is 1 Corinthians. What is this? Chapter 1. So let's go there. First Corinthians chapter 1. I think it's verse 17. This is what Paul says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's like, man, I'm, I'm not here to try and bust out this crazy presentation. I'm not here to speak eloquently. Man, I'm just here to tell you about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he came to save and die for the ungodly. That's who he came for. This is who he is. And as broken as that presentation may be, it is filled with many gospel truths. Maybe you're not for the people. Maybe you're like, I'm not the hammer. I'm not for the people. Maybe you're the worker. Maybe you're the worker. You're the one that loves mission. Man, we got to build the houses. We got to build the ditches. We got to build the facilities. We got to build the chairs. Give me money or give us money so that we can have tools so that we can build the houses, right? Like, it's, you love mission. Send me to Haiti. I'm going to go to Africa. When? Right now? Let's do this, right? You're all about the mission. I love that. I love that, right? Uh, but you compromise people. <laughs> Not so fun anymore. Uh, you compromise people and you sacrifice theology because the word theology scares you, right? You hear about theology? Oh, no, I'm not going to talk about that because, you know, God loves people and so we're going to build ditches, right? Cool? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. He, he, he does. 
and theology is not bad. Theology fuels your philosophy. What you believe shapes how you live. So theology matters. Theology is important. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Ask questions. Don't be afraid of the word theology. It's okay. To compromise people, what do, we, what do we mean by compromising people? People become projects and no longer image bearers. They become projects and no longer image bearers. Similar to the one that's for the people, you've come to build all the things, but deep down in the heart of what's going on, you're going to be the one that saves them. So you compromise it. So that person or those individuals become projects. They're no longer image bearers. You're no longer doing this for the glory of God. Right? You compromise people. So maybe you're one of those three. I, I don't know. But here's what we need. You're the kind of teachers that we need. We need disciples. We need disciples. Disciples have a healthy balance of all three. Yeah, they might be stronger in some areas or not, but nevertheless, they have a healthy uh, balance. You see, a disciple of Jesus loves theology. In other words, they love theology because they worship God. They understand who God is. They understand what God has done, and they understand what God has done for them. And so they worship him. But in addition to that, not only have they received a new mind, they've received a new heart. So they love theology, but they love people because they have been transformed by God. There is nothing special about them, but God rescued them. And so they have been transformed by God. And as a result of having a new heart, now they love the mission because they are obedient to God. A disciple of Jesus worships God, has been transformed by God, and is obedient to God. And that is cyclical. It happens. It's part of sanctification. You're going to grow in these areas, and your job is to replicate. A disciple of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus. That's what a disciple does. That's what a disciple does. And even some of you Christians, you will hear that and you'll still want to be either the hammer, the person that is for the people, or the one who loves to work. And you miss it. You miss it. Now, you might be stronger in some of those areas, and that's okay. That's the point of being a part of the local church, the local church body, right? Is that we're going to come together, and some of us are going to be arms, some of us are going to be legs, some of us are going to be parts of a brain, right? Like we're going to share a bunch of things so that we would work in one, move in unity, because by yourself, you either sacrifice theology, you sacrifice mission, or you sacrifice people. And a healthy disciple of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus. And so as we've walked through the, some of the things that Jesus has taught, and as we've walked through what kind of a teacher are you, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Because the teachings of Christ, Christian, have implications for your life. They continually point us to God and His glory and they challenge us to point others to God and his glory. Those are the implications for the Christian on Christ's teaching. They point you to Jesus, or they challenge you to point others to him. 
all of his teachings, if we see him merely as a teacher, then we lose value in his word and the gospel. We lose value. So maybe you're one of those three, right? The hammer. I, man, I know where I land. I don't want to say it. <laughs> the hammer. Nope. I'm, some of you probably already know. <laughs> and here's the thing. And we need to repent. And we need to repent. Like that's not something you should be proud about. Like that's not cool. It's not something we should be proud about. Because if the implications of the teachings of Christ, or the teachings of Christ, the kind of implications they have on me is that they are to point me to Jesus, not to myself, and that they are to challenge me to point others to Jesus and his glory, not my stupidity. Right? So what kind of a teacher are you? And how do those implications affect your life? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time where we get to walk through your word and we get to unpack your word and we get to worship you through your word proclaimed. God, I have uh, brothers and sisters who are here, who love you, who dearly love you, and we need to repent. We need to repent because we often miss it. We miss the purpose of why you came. We miss the purpose of what and why you teach us. We take things into our own hands for whatever the reason. And God, we need to repent. So Lord, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of our arrogance? Would you forgive us of our ignorance? God, would you forgive us of our would you forgive and change our hearts that can oftentimes be far removed from you? God, would, we, would you please convict us just like we see, you, we see Jesus do in Luke 4? He says hard things. Would you tell us hard things right now, Holy Spirit, so that we would repent? so that we would repent and look to what it looks like to be a healthy disciple. So that we would look to what it looks like to be, man, a local church body that's united. And so that we would ultimately fix our eyes on Jesus. God, there are, there are people here who don't know you. And perhaps through your word, uh, Holy Spirit, you've, uh, you've convicted them. Well, I pray that you would continue to be at work in them right now so that they would confess their sin and repent so that they would see that Jesus is good so that they would see that one of the things that Jesus ultimately teaches, whether it's through compassion or saying hard things or discipleship, is that he is ultimately saying, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would come to you right now, that they would repent of their sin, that they would disregard their self-righteousness, that they would disregard their pride and come to you in repentance. 
and ultimately in worship. God, as we look to a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, this is where we give you our stuff. This is where we give you our stuff and demonstrate your work in us. That we are not bound, that we are not held by the things that we think we have control over, but that we would give sacrificially, that we would give generously, that we would give faithfully so that your excellencies would be proclaimed, so that your gospel would be advanced, so that your kingdom would be expanded. God, may this be the cry of our hearts, you accomplishing your will. And we ask all these things in Christ. Amen.